Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Forensic pathology is the area of medical study devoted to interpreting a medical history and telling the story in a public forum. Recent developments in examining hair, blood splatter evidence, DNA, and in using simple logic have enhanced investigations and understandings of how, when, and where a person died. Dr. Michael Bodden is the chief medical examiner for the New York State Police and the author of Dead Reckoning, The New Science of Catching Killers. I spoke with Dr. Bodden from his home in New York City in this, the first of a two-part series on aspects of forensic pathology, which was originally broadcast in January of 2002. I began by asking him to tell us about what the examination of a person's hair can reveal. Hair has uh, proven to be a goldmine of forensic information, of scientific information, during the past 10 years. Uh, It started out with being able to find DNA in the hair roots, the nuclear DNA in the hair roots, when hair is pulled out, and the mitochondrial DNA, the other DNA that's in the cytoplasm of the cell, not in the nucleus, that's uh, abundant in the shaft of the hair. And the first thing we notice is that many of the old hair matches under the microscope up until 10 years ago were wrong. For the person who uh, doesn't know what mitochondrial DNA is, can you explain that? Sure. Now, uh, most of the time we talk about DNA, we're talking about the double helix type DNA. Uh, That's one strand from mom and one uh, strand from dad uh, that forms the new human being and w- one of these um, uh, spirals is in the uh, nucleus, and that makes us our unique beings. But in addition to that DNA, there's a second kind of DNA, a circular kind of DNA, that's in the cytoplasm of the cell, outside the nucleus. And that's um, derived only from the mother. So all of us have our mother's mitochondrial DNA, and we have 50-50 nuclear DNA from mom and dad. So um, siblings would all have the same mitochondrial DNA. That's right. The siblings uh, would have the same kind as would the daughter's children, not the son, not the brother's children. The, 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 the sisters uh, have the same uh, mitochondrial DNA as their children and mom. Uh, males have their mother's DNA in the mitochondrial areas. Okay. So looking at hair... So a a, a number of things. One, in looking at hair, uh, hair is very rich in both these kinds of DNA. Uh, Also, the hair turns out to be a a storehouse, a warehouse, veritable warehouse of hundreds and hundreds of drugs that we take into our bodies. Nicotine, caffeine, um, Prozac, heroin, cocaine. Uh, when we take them into our bodies, uh, these molecules run around our bloodstream, get into all cells in the body, including the, the, the new hair root cells. 
in the normal course, these molecules then come out and we get rid of them in the urine and the bile, or breathe them out, and uh, there's no trace of them after a few days. But the hair is constantly growing so that molecules get trapped in the growing hair, and even though uh, the, the um, other molecules are going back into the bloodstream, as the hair grows, the molecules trapped there can't get back out. So we have, like a tree, we have uh, circles of uh, drugs in our hair, and not only does it stay in our hair, but we can tell from the how far the hair has grown when the drug was taken, such as uh, the fact that head hair, which is most use- useful, grows about half an inch a month. So if we take hair from somebody that's four inches away, uh, that those drugs were deposited eight months before. And this has proven very valuable in uh, detecting poisonings, uh, even months and months after the poisonings occurred. It's also very important with the date rape drugs, roofies and things, because those drugs get in the body, person gets confused, disoriented, may pass out, and by the time a urine is collected, a complaint is made, a urine is collected, or blood is collected, it's already gone from the body. But it's still but it there. stays in the hair. It's still there in the hair. Yes. And does it um, degrade at all in the hair, or is it as good uh, four or six months later as it no, was it's, earlier? It's as good four or six months later because it stays there locked up, not being metabolized, because the hair, once it grows out, is, is uh, dead is dead. It's like a horn in some animals, and it just stays there, waiting to be identified in the forensic scientific toxicology laboratory if it should be called upon to release it at some later date. And it's just been very valuable in uh, in proving poisonings, because often poisonings aren't considered for days, weeks, or months after the event. Well, in listening to you talk um, at some lectures uh, I've heard and looking at your book, um, you're a man full of anecdotes and stories. Can you give us some that relate to examination of hair? Well, um, the first time I was involved uh, with hair analysis was about eight years ago when we first started to use this technology. And this is a case in Pennsylvania where a, um, uh, a, a husband dies at Hershey Hospital in, in uh, Pennsylvania. At the time of death, it's noticed that his hair had been falling out, and they do a test for um, poisons, and they find a high level of thallium. Thallium is one of, these, uh, one of the elements that was commonly used as a pest killer, pesticide, especially in farms and places. And about 10 or 15 years ago, about 15 years ago, because it's a white powder and kids and farms would inadvertently get into it and, and eat it uh, and die, it was taken off the market for that purpose uh, as a pest killer. But there's some of it still around in some places. This fellow uh, dies. They determine that it's thallium poisoning, it's a homicide, and an intensive investigation goes on, and they find that he was in the process, he was a construction worker in the process of uh, tearing down 
a chemistry building in a local um, university. And in that chemistry building was many elements, mercury and, and, and sulfur, and thallium was there, too. So the initial thought was uh, that this was a, um, uh, a co-worker who put it into the iced tea that he brought every day from home. Um, I got a call about a year later saying, Doc, you know, we got a problem here. Uh, this fellow died of thallium poisoning, but uh, we, we've checked out everything, and, uh, and uh, there's no way that uh, any of his coworkers did it. Uh, and he'd been working at that job for about six months. So um, you never ask a barber if you need a haircut, and you never ask a medical examiner if you need an exhumation. I said, the best thing we can do at this point is uh, exhume the body and get the hair, because hair stays for decades and decades post-mortem, and see when the poisoning started. I asked them, uh, what about the wife? Is she a suspect? And, of course, in New York, when uh, somebody dies, the spouse or the ex-spouse is immediately a suspect. But in uh, Pennsylvania, they said, well, she's not a suspect. And I said, why? She said, well, she didn't hire a lawyer, and she's been very cooperative. So we, got, we did the exhumation primarily to get the hair, but also to look at the stomach and intestines to see if if this were taken by mouth, or, or then then the thallium would be in the intestinal tract. And sure enough, when we did the hair analysis, he had long hair. Uh, it turned out that the poisoning didn't happen all at once, but it started about 12 months before he died, because we could see spikes in the hair of thallium, and there were about 10 spikes across till he finally died. And you found it to be a cumulative effect. It was. Well, it was increasing. It was partially cumulative, but the last dose was a very big dose. He, he was getting sicker and sicker and sicker from the cumulative effect, and then he, we found that he had a final dose while he was in the hospital, about two days before he was pronounced dead, because we found a whole lot of it in the uh, stomach. So um, it turned out that it started before he went to work in, as a construction worker, where and the only person who could have done it was the wife, who it turned out had brought him a McDonald's milkshake, the the day he passed into his final terminal coma, within which, um, uh, and that was the only food he had taken by mouth, so it had to the thallium had to be in that milkshake, and and she um, uh, plea bargained so she she'd avoid the death penalty, and the information she gave us was right on target with all the different spikes that we saw in the hair, because it wasn't a continuous dose of thallium. It was like every few weeks she'd give a dose till she could kill him. Well, doctor, you mentioned that uh, you look in the stomach, you look in the intestines. Um, Obviously, that's going to tell you something uh, about what was eaten, but what will it tell the examiner? Well, the stomach has turned out to be very valuable, too, because, as you say, it tells us not only what the, what the last meal was. Uh, out in California, it became important uh, uh, in the O.J. Simpson trial because um, um, Mrs. Simpson uh, uh, had a stomach full of uh, food that she had eaten in last, and that matched the food that she had eaten in the uh, restaurant that she had been at before coming uh, back home. 
And uh, it tells us not only what was the last meal, but also how long before the last meal was taken by the, by the extent of um, digestion. Normally, if we eat a regular meal or a small meal, uh, 95% of the food in the stomach um, goes into the small intestine within about two hours so, and with a lot of digestion. So if we see food that's fresh in the stomach and that uh, hasn't been much digested, it would indicate to us that the uh, person died um, within uh, less than an hour of eating. Uh, if uh, all the food is out of the stomach, it would indicate that the person lived for at least three or four hours after eating the last meal. So it, it's helpful in, de in, in um, determining whether or not... Uh, uh, how long the person uh, lived after the last meal, as well as telling us what the last meal was. I want to talk to you and ask you some questions about the O.J. Simpson trial, but first I want to tell our listeners that uh, this week we're talking with Dr. Michael Bodden, who is the chief medical examiner for the medical legal section of the New York State Police, and he's the author of a recent book called Dead Reckoning, The New Science of Catching Killers. You're listening to Radio Cure. I'm Barry Vogel. Um, Michael, you played a uh, significant role in analyzing uh, the uh, evidence at the Simpson trial. Uh, and I know that you paid particular attention to blood splatters on uh, Mrs. Simpson's body. Yeah, the, 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 uh, there were a lot of things that were done wrong at the um, crime scene. Uh, uh, where Nicole Simpson and uh, uh, Mr. Goldman were found. And that has raised awareness. The good thing about that is that there's been a tremendous increase in awareness among police departments all over the, the United States and other countries to how to learn techniques to preserve the crime scene and not to intrude on the crime scene so the evidence doesn't get contaminated in any way. And in particular, there was some very dramatic blood spatter evidence on Nicole Simpson's back, seen on the crime scene uh, in photographs documented by the photographer, the police photographers, showing low-velocity blood drops, that is, blood dropping um, uh, from above at a 90-degree angle, most likely from a cut hand or something, because it couldn't have come from Nicole Simpson because her neck was cut in the front and she was bleeding forward and Ron Goldman was over in um in uh, a corner uh, a distance away so that um it couldn't have been cast off drops from his blood all of which leave different spatter patterns and when you say low velocity you mean that it uh, was from a uh, a close distance it didn't have no, low travel. velocity that we we had, these are terms of art that is, if uh, there's a, a dripping blood from a cut, like we cut our finger and drips, that's a low-velocity uh, drop, as opposed to medium or high-velocity blood drops, which have a lot of energy put into it. If a, if a bullet strikes the skin, it'll cause blood to spatter out at a, at a much greater force than a, a, a drop of blood just dripping freely. Uh, from a cut finger, and the importance of that is 
that the more the force that goes into causing the blood spatter, the faster and smaller are the blood drops. So a low-velocity blood drop is... is um, large, like the kinds of drops we see on television someplace where we have water or, or milk dropping one drop at a time and giving a very interesting spatter pattern when it hits the surface. Uh, here, a uh, high velocity from a, a bullet causes very fine spray. A uh, spatter pla uh, pattern from somebody being hit in the head with a baseball bat, which isn't as much energy as a bullet, causes a medium velocity, and the blood drops are a little bigger than with a bullet, whereas a freely falling blood drop is, is the largest uh, and looks like a, a drop of anything falling, uh, you know, from a, 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 an eyedropper, for example, so that these distinctions help us at a crime scene in determining how the blood spatter originated and uh, the, the position, the relative positions of the persons involved at the time uh, that the blood was generated. So what was learned and what was missed in the Simpson case? In the Simpson case, there were low-velocity falling drop, uh, blood drops from above her on Nicole Simpson's back that had to come from the perpetrator or from somebody who was there bleeding, uh, standing above her. Though, although those blood spa, spa, spatters were seen and photographed, they were not collected. And the, the body was turned on its back into the body bag, sent down to the medical examiner's office, washed off in the medical examiner's office, and they disappeared without any testing. If those blood spots had been tested with DNA, and they turned out to be O.J. Simpson's blood, End of case. If they turned out to be somebody else's blood, that required a lot more investigation. But this, very, this was the most critical evidence, I think, in the whole crime scene and was totally missed and not protected. And I think one of the things we try to train our New York State troopers, and we do a lot of lecturing now around the country to homicide uh, uh, divisions because of the great interest in learning more about crime scene protection, is what we try to explain to them is that um, not only do you have to be careful at the scene where nobody should come into the scene who doesn't need to be there, they can't have everybody just wandering around, but two, the second most common place that evidence is destroyed is in the body bag on the uh, removal of the body from the crime scene to the morgue. And that today, with all the new technologies, you can't turn bodies over. One, you, the bodies have to be moved in the same way that they're found, because as soon as you turn a body over, you're going to lose a lot of trace evidence. So how do you pick them up? Uh, you just pick them up the way they're laying. Nicole Simpson was laying face down, put a sheet under her, face down, and pick them up and bring them down to the morgue um, uh, just in the same position and look, examine her in the same position so she doesn't get turned over. Or the alternative is to do a careful examination of the body at the crime scene, because a lot of this evidence could be identified, photographed, and removed at the crime scene. So why are bodies moved, uh, placed on their back, uh, cleaned up? That still goes on because after we, you know, I thought everybody learned a lesson from O.J. Simpson, but along came John Benet Ramsey, and they made the same darn mistakes. You know, everything got uh, got messed up in in. Um, uh, with John Benet Ramsey, and the scene was not protected. And even though 
in the initially they thought it was a kidnapping. You protect the kidnapping scene just the way you do a a murder scene. You you, you want to say, hey, how did the bad guy get in? You know, where did the, what uh, shoe steps? What fingerprints did the bad guy did the kidnapping leave? Uh, point of entry, point of exit. All of that has to be protected so that nobody goes into the place except uh, the crime scene uh, investigators. And uh, that didn't happen with John Benet Ramsey and Barry. We have like 40 murders a day in the United States presently. And in most of those murders, the crime scene gets messed up. Why is that? Well, what's, what's behind that? Is it the ego of the people involved? Well, I think what's behind it is lack of proper training and lack of attention. This country doesn't value or has not valued the importance of murder investigation. Um, we have a situation in the United States where half the United States uh, is still run by coroners, elected coroners, where the only requirement is being a citizen of the United States, a voting age, uh, that's it, a citizen of the United States and a voting age, and you can run for coroner. And most, um, uh, and this goes for, for half the United States. Now, they rely in, to do autopsies on hospital pathologists who have no, have no training in forensic pathology, and so lots of evidence gets lost right there. Among the medical examiner uh, systems around the United States, um, there still has to be more training for medical examiners and police investigators to protect the crime scene so that um, evidence doesn't get lost or contaminated, to make sure the body is removed properly, to make sure the body isn't washed off as soon as it gets down to the morgue before there's a chance to remove the trace evidence. And I think this is really a revolution since DNA, because up until 1988, trace evidence didn't matter much. You know, most... Most solved cases came about from confessions. Uh, now, it turns out that some confessions are wrong. They're, they're wrong because people confess to, to uh, things they didn't do, or they're wrong because people are forced to confess to things that they didn't do, you know, during the interrogation process and all that. I point out, uh, or because things are misinterpreted, such as my cousin Vinny is a good example of that in the, new, in the movie. But um, uh, I think that today we still, ha we still have g uh, people getting let out of uh, death row because of murders they didn't commit, most of whom they confessed to. You know, so, so it's only since 1988 w with the, the de decline in the value of confessions and the increase in the importance of forensic science that the crime scene has become more important. Uh, Michael, in your book, you talk a lot about uh, Henry Lee, one of the uh, yes. foremost investigators. And you quote him as being asked, um, or actually you asked him, um, what are you looking for? And he replied, I don't know, but I'll tell you when I find it. What, what does that mean? Yeah, I, I think what happens is in the past, there, there would be a, a judgment made pretty quickly as to, who the perpetrator was, uh, an enemy, a uh, relative that would have had fight with, a spouse, and there would be an attempt to just extract a confession from the person who was suspect. Uh, and that's a police activity. From a forensic science uh, activity, I think that Henry Lee, we have a whole chapter about him, is, is uh, 
just uh, a unique uh, and marvelous uh, forensic scientist, partly because he was a police officer before he became a forensic scientist, and he he knows what's important, what isn't important at a crime scene. And uh, we have to be able to, what I was trying to make the point there is what we have to do at a crime scene, whether it's the forensic uh, scientist like Henry Lee or the forensic pathologist uh, like uh, myself, when we go to a crime scene, or if a police, uh, CSI, uh, police officers, we have to keep an open mind, not rush to a judgment as to who's guilty or innocent, um, to collect whatever evidence um, is uh, there. And we shouldn't close our minds to uh, to any type of evidence, and, and that's why the, the crime scene is, is such a wonderful place for the scientific mind, because you don't know, you can't anticipate in advance what you're going to find, and you have to look uh, until you find whatever is there and not jump to a judgment and only look for what you think is going to support that judgment. Well, Dr. Michael Bodden, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, I uh, just finished reading, I thought, uh, a very interesting uh, uh, book in book form from hell. Uh, it, it's it's a, uh, a sort of a illustrated book um, about uh, Jack the Ripper, from which they made the current, the recent movie with Johnny Depp and all uh, 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 that was kind of popular a few weeks ago. It's by Alan Moore, Eddie Campbell, and what it does is it delves into trying to find out who Jack the Ripper was, and it includes a lot of interesting data about the 1888 uh, murders, and I think Jack the Ripper is kind of the first of the modern murders. Uh, it sort of changed the face. It did at the end of the 19th century, I think what uh, O.J. Simpson did at the end of the 20th century, it called attention to the importance of the homicide investigation led to the creation of homicide detectives, led to the creation of uh, pathologists dedicated to homicide investigation, the first forensic pathologists. And it's done in a very interesting way. I don't agree with his conclusion, you know, that that there's Dr. Gull is the uh, Jack the Ripper. But I think the book itself is an interesting art form, and it has a lot of very useful information uh, about the Jack the Ripper uh, murders and their... Uh, the problems in 1888 when they didn't have any forensic science, no fingerprints, no blood spatter evidence, no ABO groups, no DNA, and it shows how, how far we've come in, in the last century. Tell us again the name and the author. It's, it's called From Hell, just like the movie that's based on it, and the authors are Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L, Dr. Michael Bodden, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Good to be with you, Barry. Dr. Michael Bodden is the author of Dead Reckoning, The New Science of Catching Killers. The book he recommends is From Hell by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org.
There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.